Please join me now in Luke chapter 16 as we take on, I think, a very interesting parable, maybe one of the most interesting of them all. It's a parable that deals with the topic of money, and it is the one we call the parable of the dishonest manager. So worldwide, we know this. These are very challenging economic times. We hear a lot about a supply chain problem. We see a lot, a shortage of products, even shortage of things like cars and affordable housing. There's growing inflation and climbing interest rates. And if you're trying to save money for retirement, we know at least in the short term, that's decreased rather than increased. But here's the question. How do you process financial issues in your life? Just talking about these problems on the world stage economically can cause a physical reaction in your heart. Right here in this room, as I mentioned some of these financial realities, some of you might have been struck by fear and worry on the one hand. But it's possible in the same room there could have been other people thinking, I'm not worried about that. And their hearts were full of pride and arrogance on the other hand. It just illustrates that our view of money is very, very spiritual. Few things in life are as spiritual as how you view and how you use money. And Jesus is going to speak right into that for us today. Now, whenever Jesus speaks to any topic, you and I should lean in because nobody loves you more than Jesus. He does love you. And nobody is wiser than Jesus. Even when we come to the realm of finances, you might have people you trust financially. I hope you have some good advisors in your life, perhaps. But nobody knows more than your Savior, Jesus. So whether you watch Fox Business or CNBC or you listen to people at Fidelity or Vanguard, whatever you're doing there, Jesus knows more than any of those people. And you're going to see that from our talk together right here. So let's go in together. Luke 16, a parable that is indeed very interesting. The first hearers, the disciple of Jesus, when they heard this before Jesus finishes, I'm sure the people might have gasped. They might have chuckled at what he says before he explains this one. Very interesting now verse 1, Luke 16, 1. Now he was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors. And he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. Here's Jesus telling this very interesting parable. The disciples must have scratched their heads at this point before he explains it. Like, what's this one all about? Unlike many of the parables, there's no clear good guy in this parable. And somebody might be wondering at this point, wait a minute, is Jesus actually affirming somebody who was a dishonest money manager? 
And clearly, Jesus isn't doing that. So what's happening in this parable? First of all, a rich man is firing his money manager because, as the scripture says, he was squandering his master's money. And this unfaithful money manager is now panicked as he considers a, a future without a job. As he assesses it, I'm too weak to do manual labor at this stage in my life. And I'm too proud to become a beggar. So he comes up with a plan to try to secure some friends for himself who will help take care of him when he's soon to be jobless and potentially homeless. So he takes the ledger where he had kept up with his master's debts and debtors, and he goes to these debtors and he thinks, I'm going to make some friends for myself. I'm going to, I'm going to try to ingratiate myself to these people by reducing the debts. So one person owed a hundred measures of oil. He said, let's just cut that in half. You now only owe 50. Goes to another who owed a owed hundred measures of wheat. We're going to drop that 20%. And that was the idea. I'm going to make people happy with me. Some scholars say what might've been going on in the story that Jesus tells is that perhaps this money manager just dropped his commission on these debts. Maybe, or maybe he just removed the interest on these debts, maybe, but it appears that he just flat dropped the charges. We're just going to, we're going to drop the debt down in half. He just did it. Jesus's point here is this man was clever in using his financial relationship with these people to make friends who would take him in when he was soon to be in need. But of course, Jesus is not endorsing dishonesty, being tricky with money. So what is he saying? Well, thankfully, Jesus keeps talking, and we're going to pick up several points of application here. Here's going to be the first point of application. Use material possessions for eternal purposes. Use material possessions for eternal purposes. Key word here is going to be the word eternal. By the way, I'm using the NAS this morning. Verse 8, and his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. Then this, now Jesus tells us the point for the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness for that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Notice this. First of all, Jesus makes a distinction between two groups of people. First of all, the sons of this age and the sons of light. So who are the sons of this age? Jesus used that term to refer to unbelievers. Unbelievers live only for right now. And that's how you and I live. Before we became believers, we live for the here and now with no thought of eternity. And so unbelievers seek to maximize their comfort now in the only life they think about. And here the unrighteous steward here, the, the dishonest manager, he's shrewd like that. He's clever like that, using money to make his life more bearable in the present. But notice here, Jesus calls on us, his disciples, to be shrewd with money as well, but not with the same goals as unbelieving neighbors. Why? Because we're sons of the light. And what a great description that is of believers in Christ. We're now sons of the light. Now, God is light. Remember that in 1 John when we're told this, God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. In other words, God is holy. That word light in the scriptures often has to do with knowledge and wisdom and insight. And so believers and unbelievers both use money in the present time. But our eyes as disciples is to be on eternal things, on eternal good. So as sons of light, 
We're to view and use money very differently. But it's true, we all shop in the same stores. We all need to buy food. And so believers, unbelievers, we're going to buy groceries. We all need clothes. We all need housing things. But our ultimate goals are to be very different. Notice with me that Jesus says that money will fail. His wording here is when it fails. So we already can look at the world now and see that some currencies are in trouble. Some places with hyperinflation, you think, wow, that currency is in trouble. Right now in Russia, the ruble in trouble. I think it really did tank initially. I don't know. I think it came back some. I haven't looked at it recently, but there was a currency in trouble, maybe still in trouble. But before we get too proud, we know our dollar can be in trouble. And so depending on who you listen to, there's reason for concern with this hyper debt in our country and the dollar being devalued. And so we understand it's going to fail may not fail in our lifetime. But here's the point. Money will always fail. That's what Jesus said, when it, when it fails. So certainly at your death, if you've been hoping in your money, it will fail you. You cannot take it with you. When Jesus returns, all of our money will be worthless in that moment. It's going to fail. Some of you like me, maybe you drive around. Sometimes I'm listening to talk radio and all those advertisements. Well, you need to invest in gold. Now, the dollar might be in trouble. You better get in gold, gold or silver. And all those commercials, and I'm not, you know, you, you talk to your financial advisor about that, but I just would remind you this, ultimately gold will fail. It's not going to be your hope. You're not going to put my hope in gold. Well, still, when you die, it's of no value to you. And when Jesus comes of no value, you do know there's coming a time where they're going to pave the streets with gold. So it's not that valuable to God. Where we're, going, we're just going to pave. It's going to be beautiful, but it's not something you're going to put your hope in. I've read recently about in some Eastern cultures, they have an interesting take on money at funerals. They will actually make paper replicas of things in order to kind of help their loved ones in the next life the way they see it. So they'll make fake money that they'll burn at the funeral as a way of then transmitting that, those funds there. They might make a paper replica of houses, paper replica of cars, paper replica of other things, and then burn them as a way of somehow getting that stuff to their loved ones. That's futile. It's not going to work. Those things don't work. Listen, money fails. Even real money fails. But Jesus says, use your money now to impact other people coming to Christ. That's what he's talking about here. He's, he speaks about their eternal dwellings. So Jesus is saying that those who come to Christ may one day welcome you into their eternal home. So you and I can do better than merely making friends with our money that they might have us over for dinner in this life. We might invest our money in gospel proclaiming ministry and be involved in those ministries ourselves that people might repent and believe in Jesus and have an everlasting home and they might welcome you into that home. One writer said it this way, when we give to missions, when we support our local church, when we give to charity in the name of Jesus, then we are using unrighteous worldly wealth to build up the kingdom of God and lift up the name of Christ we are being shrewd in our dealings in this world when our eyes are on the eternal homes we will one day inhabit with our friends in Christ. Now, I don't know if this is how it works, but I had this mental picture come into my mind this week studying this passage that there could come a day in my future when I'm in heaven, walking on the new earth, just walking along, enjoying the glory of God. And somebody say, hey, Jim, come in here a minute. Hey, you know, I, I learned that you used to pray for our people group. Never met you, but in that Wednesday night prayer group, you, you prayed for our people group. And I know you gave to missions. And here I am. A missionary came to me with the gospel. And here I am. And hey, come in here now. Let's have some tea together. <laughs> I don't know if it works that way or not. 
It's a cool idea, though, to be invited into their eternal dwelling and having had some part. And it's just a wonderful way to think about how we're supposed to use our material resources now to impact eternity for other people. So the important application here is this. Knowing that our money will fail, as Jesus said, we're to invest in eternal things. We're to give and use our money in such a way that we advance the kingdom of God. We're to invest in gospel pursuits that can result in more and more people coming to Jesus, having their sins forgiven, and being adopted into the very family of God. Now, how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, we can build this into our hearts and we can build this into the rhythm of our lives really first through our tithing, through our giving of offerings. I was reading recently some news stories and they talked about how different politicians give to charity. And these articles come around really every election cycle. But sometimes I like to point out that some of these politicians who talk a lot about helping the poor don't give a lot of money themselves to that. I won't mention any names here because it wouldn't be fair. We don't know. This is just what they've been able to glean from their tax returns. Maybe they're giving to charity that doesn't show up there, in fairness. But one politician that I won't name, wealthy, they ran the numbers, and this person, with all their millions, gave only 2% to charity. Another wealthy politician gave only 0.07% to charity. And so, wow, that is a disconnect. With all this talk about helping others, when it comes from the personal bank account, not a whole lot there. But again, we're not going to criticize them too harshly because what's that reflect? That reflects a heart of the sons of this age. That's different. We are called the sons of light. We're to look at money very differently. So you and I were the same way before Jesus came into our lives. Probably not nearly as generous as he's inspired us to be in these days. But as sons and daughters of light now, we calculate finances differently. We look at them differently because our Lord is teaching us to do that. So let me ask this. We can look at those politicians and we can critique them. But how about you? Only you and God know what you give. I have no idea what anybody in the church gives other than our household. But how about this? What percentage of your time and treasures is aimed at eternal gospel purposes? For thinking clearly, we think, well, I want, I want everything about my life to be aimed at eternal gospel purposes. I'd like to begin to think like this when it comes to going grocery shopping, which is increasingly unpleasant with inflation. I'd like to think, though, why do I need groceries? Well, I need groceries that I might live another day that I may give glory to God with my entire life. I'd like to think that way. Or how about why do I need transportation? And we do need it. Well, that I might work a job, that I might meet my needs, but also bring glory to God and point other people to Christ. Or why do I need an education? I want an edu education so that I can get a job and provide for the people that I'm responsible for, but ultimately that I might point more people to Christ. But a key move in all that is we think about everything's his, but a key move in establishing that is, is giving up front. When you're establishing your budget, all right, up front, because I'm supposed to use material things for eternal purposes, a great way to set that priority is I'm going to establish the giving first so that I'm not merely thinking about leftovers later. Now, it's fun as a church to watch what that giving does together. Again, I don't know what any individual family gives but my own. But we do see these numbers together when we give. And, and so, for instance, around the Christmas season, we give toward international missions. And you and I gave together $155,000. That's a kingdom focus, isn't it? That's thinking eternally with these dollars we could have spent on other things. 
Right now in this season of giving for North American missions, you saw our goal of 35,000. We're very, very close and over 32,000 right now. We celebrate that giving toward eternal causes together. All along, we're giving to something we call the cooperative program. Well over $100,000 a year we give to the cooperative program. It also supports missions and six great seminaries and so many other good things. In our church budget, we have things like compassion ministries and money for evangelism there. Here, our budget and our just normal budget doesn't sound exciting, but one of the things it does, it keeps us here on the corner of Staples Mill Road in Warren, where we can be a gospel presence here, doing many ministries on a daily basis in our area, but also touching the nations from here. We also support through our regular giving, we support several local church plants and they're doing much good in our area alongside us, but we're helping to fund that. One of the exciting ones is one that we actually don't give them any money, but we provide the space for them. So Gracia Sobre Gracia, right here, Pastor Hugo. So when we leave in a little while, Gracia Sobre Gracia Church, they're going to start coming in. And downstairs, they're going to be worshiping in the Spanish language. On Thursday nights, they're up here also studying the Bible together. When Pastor Hugo and their team wanted a, a space, they asked, well, what, what can we pay you to use your space there at Staples Mill? We said, nothing. We don't, we don't need a thing. You just come here. And so that's happening because of your eternal focus on giving that a beautiful ministry like that is happening right here. All these things that we're doing, even while we're making space for others, as we built this space and now paying off that space very rapidly. So here's, here's a key move for you as you think, yeah, I, I love being a part of that, but, but what part are you playing in that? A great move could be annually when you get that giving statement from our financial secretary and you in the privacy of your home, you open up that envelope and you take a look. It's a great moment with you and the Lord and say, Lord, is, is that what you would have me do? Does this reflect what you want me to do? And maybe God may just affirm, well done, son or daughter. He may do that. Or he might challenge you in that moment. No, you, no, you actually, I blessed you so much. You could actually take that to another level to invest even more there. So the first point our Savior gives us in this very interesting parable is this. Use material possessions for eternal purposes. Keyword there, eternal. Second point by our Savior. Be faithful with material possessions. Be faithful with material possessions. Second keyword I want you to write down is the word faithful. Here's what our Savior says, verse 10. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you've not been faithful in the use of what is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Jesus speaks of being faithful. So unlike the dishonest manager in this parable, you and I are to be faithful and honest with our resources. In other words, we're to use money the way God intends for us to use the money that he has entrusted us. And no doubt, a lot of it is going to be used on things like housing and on clothing and on transportation, education. That's good stewardship. I wouldn't want anybody here to think, well, I'm not going to pay those things. That's not spiritual. Well, listen, if you don't pay those things, somebody's got to bail you out. So it is good stewardship with the money God entrusts you, that you take care of the needs that you have in life through hard work and, and being wise in your spending. And if you need help, of course, there are people who can come alongside. But we've seen here that God has more in mind for our resources than just we spend it all on our daily up, upkeep. That he has us lifting our eyes up to eternity. That we want to be generous in ministries that touch eternity. I want you to notice with me how Jesus ranks so low money versus what he calls true riches. 
Here he speaks about money being a very little thing. Did you notice verse 10? Money in God's estimation, that's a very little thing. And as we saw in verse 9, ultimately, it will have very little value. It's going to fail. But our use of money, though it's a little thing in the eyes of God, it shows in big ways whether we're faithful or not faithful. If we are faithful with the very little thing of money, God may entrust greater things to us. So think about it with your children. Your children, when they're growing up, you give them some responsibilities. If they handle that responsibility well, you might give them some increasing responsibilities. But it also works in reverse. If you give them a responsibility, hey, you're going to take care of the pet. I want you to take care of the pet. And they don't do so well with it. The pet's in danger because of the neglect. Then you're not going to say, well, now watch your siblings. You'll be the babysitter of your brothers and sisters. No, no. If they're not faithful in a small thing, you're not going to give them something more precious. And likewise, Jesus says, listen, money is a very little thing ultimately, certainly to God who owns everything. It's a very little thing. But I'm looking to see whether you're faithful with it and it will determine whether something else is entrusted to you. So how are you using what God has put into your hands? Maybe you're here today saying, I want God to use me for his glory. I want God to use me in greater ways than he presently uses me. That's a great, that's a great desire. But one of the first places you might look at, well, how am I handling this very small thing of money? It's a small responsibility. Ultimately, he's given me compared to what I want to do. Are you faithful there? Did you know this? When people are, or when churches are considering pastors to serve in their church, that they not only do criminal background checks, but they also do financial background checks. They've been doing it for years. I've been your pastor for over 15 years. And when I was working with the search committee here years ago, uh, they said, we're going to do a criminal background check and a financial background check. And I knew that that's what churches do. And, uh, I think it's wonderful. I th isn't really an application of this very text. You know, you are going to see, is this guy faithful in the financial realm? Because we're about to entrust our souls to his care. And if he's not faithful with this, God's other resources, which is not nearly as valuable to God, then, then we're not going to do this here. By the way, when we're calling pastors to the church here, we'll ask them questions. We don't ask the regular church members. So we're going to ask our pastors, yeah, we're going to do the financial background check. But then in that interview process, you know, we ask them about you. So are you a tither? You know, how do you do with your stewardship here? We, we don't ask average members that, but we will ask our pastors because we want to make sure they're being faithful in that area. If we're going to give them this huge responsibility of shepherding God's people. So the first point our savior gives us here is use material possessions for eternal purposes. The second thing we've seen here is be faithful with material possessions. But then this one, love God, not money. Love God, not money. Keyword here is love. Verse 13, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now, the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. Jesus says that how we handle our money will show what we love and what we're devoted to. How we handle money will show what we ultimately value. So what if somebody was, were able to, somebody was able to track you over a full year and watch every expenditure, every financial transaction in your life for a whole year? If somebody had that type of access to how you spend, what would they learn about you? They would see, first of all, you got to spend a lot of money on just living because it's expensive. And so your housing, your clothing and all, they'd see all that. They'd also see what you spend on status or ego items. 
They'd also see what you spend on your personal comforts and your entertainment. And then they'd see where your giving shows up, where you're making e eternal investments in the gospel ministry for the sake of others. So, so let me ask you, nobody else has that access, but you and God, you know how you spend. So just between you and the Lord, what does your use of money say about what you ultimately love in this life? What does your use of money, what does your spending say about whom you serve? Because Jesus is asking us in this parable very clearly to clarify who your master is. Notice he says, you can't serve God and wealth. Jesus is asking us to clarify who we will love. You must love God, not money. So Jesus once again tells us to clarify the role of money in our lives. So is money your master or is God your master? Will you serve money or will you serve God? These are mutually exclusive. You can't do both. You're going to love one, hate the other. Jesus, very clear here. But again, to diagnose and answer that question, you have to ask yourself maybe questions like this. You know, what is my ultimate goal in life? Maybe word it this way. What am I dreaming of for my life? Is your dream for your life, I'm going to take great trips. I'm going to have great cars. I'm going to live in luxury. If I could have my dream, luxury for me is the dream. Maybe another question is, what am I willing to compromise that I might have this luxury that I dream for myself? So you and I, in, in light of what Jesus has taught us here, have some important decisions to make in regard to money. So when you think about budgeting, I want to encourage you to take these words of Jesus in there. I'm talking about your own personal budget. I want you to bring some things in. So if you have a financial advisor, I'm sure it's very helpful because that person's going to talk to you about right now and housing and retirement and all that. But he's not going to talk about eternity. So I want you to bring these key words in here. So when you think about your family budget, I want you to bring in that word eternity. All right, I'm sitting down. I'm going to plan this money, see where it goes. First word I'm going to bring in by my Savior is eternity. How does this budget of mine in my house, how does it impact eternity? That's what Jesus says to do. Second key word to bring in there. It's faithful. So, all right, I'm going to look at my personal financial budget. I want to see where it impacts eternity. And Lord, I want to see, is this faithful to you? Is this how you would have me spend your money that you've temporarily entrusted to me? Eternity. Faithful. And then as you're sitting down to your personal budget, Jesus would have you, what about that word love? What does this budget say about what or who I love? Does my love for you and love for unbelievers coming to you, does, does that show up in this budget? Again, a practical move in this as you're doing your budget is to establish giving first rather than just leave it to, well, if there's anything left, I'll let that impact faithfulness and eternity in my love for God. No, to, to prioritize this, a key practical move is I am going to front load this whole discussion, this whole planning with the giving up front. And then I want to be a steward of everything else. Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Maybe you know the name Tim Tebow. The name was much more famous than maybe a decade ago, but a famous college football player, Heisman Trophy winner, had a brief pro football career, played a little baseball as well, but maybe more known for writing now, being a broadcaster, but also a speaker. 
one of the things he does is that I think it's called a night to shine where they have like a prom experience for disabled young people. What a beautiful thing. And he seems to be investing his time and pointing people to something beyond just stuff. He's done quite well. I don't know if these things are accurate, but because I was going to mention him, I did look up, you know, what's his, what's his worth? You know, you, it's, it's kind of nosy that you can know that about people. I don't know if it's accurate. He seems to have done quite well in his pursuits. So he's, he's a wealthy person. But I love when he talks about money and things. He makes a distinction between success and eternal significance. And he makes the point, he's not chasing after success. And he wouldn't have anybody else chase after success, but rather eternal significance. He seems to be trying to walk that walk. Pray for him in that. I once heard Rick Warren speak. And Rick Warren was talking about in this talk about how it was always his dream to be a reverse tither. At that point, I'd never heard the term reverse tither. I'd never known one. And he explained it. His, his goal had become as a Christian, I want to one day live on 10% and give away 90%. Wow, I'd never even aspired to such a thing. And it happened to him. He was telling the story about how his book, The Purpose Driven Life, had become wildly successful. And now he had millions of dollars suddenly. He said, I had enough money where I could have gone and bought a private island somewhere. He said, but when you think about what do I do with all this money I didn't expect to have, he said the first line of his book was very helpful where it says, it's not about you. So if life's not about him, can't spend it. So he was able to fulfill I think a godly, noble ambition of becoming a reverse tither. Just going to live on 10, give away 90%. That's, in, that's impressive. Let me mention another name that you don't know, but uh, somebody that Joy and I got to know when we were uh, tracking through the process to go serve over, overseas. Uh, Dr. Pierce is his name. So we were leaving our small church in Alabama to go serve others overseas. And we came to the meetings here in Richmond where in one of those meetings, they're going to tell you, here's what you're going to make now that you serve with IMB. And uh, I had no idea. It's not why we were doing it. But I learned to my delight, leaving my wonderful small church in Alabama to go serve with this organization, I was actually going to get a little bit of a raise. So that's kind of nice. Like, whoa, I didn't expect that. I'm actually going to get a little raise going to serve in this way. But I looked across the room, and there's Dr. Pierce, an epidemiologist at Vanderbilt, and he's leaving that career. And he's going to go serve in remote places in Africa. I thought, oh, he's having a very different set of thoughts in his head right now. He's getting a drastic pay cut. I've always admired him. I've always admired all the medical missionaries. I've admired a lot of successful businessmen and women who've left that to go serve among the nations. Isn't that just what we're seeing here in this parable? That we want to be about eternal things. Ultimately, that's what lasts. And these are great examples for us. And so we've been seeing several things, but here's a final point. We'll do this one a lot more quickly. But listen, this is just as important. Here it is. Jesus teaches us here that God knows your heart. And only God can justify you. God knows your heart and only God can justify you. That's verse 15. To these Pharisees that were already told the Pharisees did love money. He said this, and he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. But God knows your hearts for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The Pharisees loved money. This is interesting. This struck me this morning as I was getting ready to come. Joy and I talked about it before I came. You know, the Pharisees, they actually were tithers. They were meticulous about tithing. And nevertheless, Jesus said of them, they loved money. So that's a good check for us. Some of us think, well, I'm already tithing. I'm already giving. And, uh, but it's still possible, apparently, that you can do that and still have your life still focused on maybe everything else that remains in our hands. We don't want to be that. But here are these Pharisees loving money, and they're justifying themselves. Like, this is no big deal. 
At least I'm not committing adultery. At least I'm not in these other sins. I'm not murdering people. I just love money. I just love material things. There's nothing wrong with that. And Jesus says, you, you don't get to justify yourself. In fact, if you think about greed a moment, the Bible likens greed to idolatry. It's another God. It's a competitor to him. And so we dare not, well, I'm just going to justify that as fine. In my estimation, that's fine. Jesus said, you know, some of the things that we think are fine, he calls detestable. And so let's take that very seriously today. Not to excuse, not to rationalize, not to try to justify ourselves. But we can bring our sin to the Lord, whether it is lust, whether it is greed, whether it is pride and arrogance, whatever our sin is, whether it's laziness, whatever our sin, we, we see it like God sees it. We bring it to him because we can't justify ourselves. And aren't you glad he can justify us? Because Jesus came, because he lived perfectly, because he gave his perfect body and blood on a cross to make atonement for our sins, because he was raised from the dead. If we come humbly and we bring all of our failures to him, we bring all of our sin to him, he can cleanse us. When we trust in Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus is attributed, credited to us. Though we can't justify ourselves, he can justify us. That's why all praise to Jesus, our Savior. And I pray that'll be your move today. Whatever sin the Lord shows you today, would you come humbly to a Savior who loves you, who wants to forgive you? It's his idea to forgive you. The cross was his idea, the resurrection, his idea. He would, he would be delighted to forgive you and to save you if you'll come to him and trust in him. Would you pray with me?